0: Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there's always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2021 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978 807 4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Do you want to skate fast?
1: For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. If you can't wait for a clinic, join our Subscription Skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy to use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at lorastam.com. That's l a u r a s t a m m.com. You can learn to skate fast. Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's rink-wise podcast. The podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky.
2: Welcome to another episode of New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Ludeke, and we've got a good show for you today. Our guests are former UNH hockey player Mark Mowers, current minnesota wild scout and also we are going to have author bruce haas on who has written an excellent book about college hockey great game and uh but before we do that i want to remind you that go to hockeyjournal.com prep seasons in full effect we've got lots of content on prep we've got power rankings we've got features and we've got lists of who's hot who's rising and uh, so subscribe download our exclusive content and uh, check it out. Also, uh, podcasts are always free. So go to Apple, Spotify, our website, or anywhere you get your podcasts to listen to our Rinkwise podcasts. So now let's bring you the first guest, Mark Mowers, Minnesota wild pro scout. All right. It's great to be joined by Mark Mowers. Uh, Pro scout Minnesota Wild, former UNH player, former pro player with uh, in the NHL. Mark, welcome to the Rinkwise Podcast. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you very much. Always good to uh, to talk to you and talk hockey with everybody else. So uh, I'm looking forward to it.
2: Yeah, great. You know that's and that's the thing, right? The, the the purpose of this podcast for for a lot of the listeners is just to. Provide the kind of insights that are going to inspire and help people get their their perspectives and their roadmaps together. Because there's a lot of players out there that maybe aren't sure, you know, what the pathway might be, and there's no cookie cutter method to to advancing in the levels of hockey as you as you know but the more they can hear from different people who have done it uh, the better they can maybe make a plan or at least uh, make some informed decisions about their future so it's it's great to have you can you can as we start out can you take us through a little bit of what your background was like how did you get into hockey where'd you grow up and and who were maybe some of the early mentors or influencers that really helped your growth as you as you moved up in the sport at lower levels
3: yeah I mean like you mentioned everybody kind of has their own story on how they started playing and how they made it to whatever level they have um, and mine I guess is is unique um, but not any different than somebody else's story but uh, I, so I was born in Georgia my dad was in the service and um, but the, him and my mom are from upstate New York so I think I was two when we moved back north um, they really had no hockey in their in their blood per se, but, um, uh, coming to the, the Utica area, um, I mean, we had the Clinton Comets and some different local professional teams. And I think my dad and, um, and my mom both took a liking to it. And before, you know, it, we were going to games and, um, the grassroots kind of started to grow right around then. Um, so, um, they got me on the ice, and they—I give them full credit because, like I said, they could have put me in anything else, and and I just kind of fell in love with it. And they um, started building rinks, and I stayed with it, and I liked it. And uh, before you know it, I was in youth hockey and all that. So, uh, you know, and then fast forwarding a little bit, um, I stayed local uh, through until uh, I graduated high school, and um, you know, several coaches along the way. And I think one of the one of the reasons I did make it as far as I did is I I felt that I was pretty coachable. So when my parents would put me into camps or the coaches I had, which were mostly dads, I think growing up, you know, I just would take little tidbits and things that helped me get better and skating. I always tried to perfect. And um, before you know it, I was, you know, heading off to UNH. uh, There's a lot of, lot of, you know, people, a lot of coaches, like I said, even fathers that, um, you know, they just cared about the kids and and tried to, to give us little details and and I took it and, and ran with them.
2: Did you go to any of the old Utica Devils games back when the when they were the Devils farm team?
3: Exactly and that's that was I think what really catapulted, you know, my my even more love for the game is getting to see these guys actually doing it for a living and back then it was, you know, it's different than now. Now it seems like the the pro guys are so accessible and you can get autographs with, you know, just hanging outside the rink or or even inside the rink, but back then it was like these guys were gods to me and you know if I happened to get a glimpse of him at a restaurant it was like oh my god you know it's just a different feeling i guess but uh but i did go to those games and you know saw you know uh, i think it was eric weinrich i remember seeing him play and you know guys that guys that i work you know not in the same organization with but um, guys that are in in the league scouting or working in development i see these guys around and it's it's pretty cool
2: I remember there was a journeyman defenseman named Alan Heppel, and uh, back in the day, I would, I would go up and see the Maine Mariners games, and uh, when the Utica Devils were playing the the, the Mariners, and uh, he he was he, I don't know it's, it seems like such a random name, but that was that was a guy that stood out to me to this day. If you asked me, to, if you have na- asked me to name one Utica Devil, it wouldn't be Marty Brodeur, who actually <laughs> did play for the Utica Devils, but it would be Alan Heppel, and it's so. Um, so- how about
3: this? Coincidentally, he—I mean, I was in Cleveland last night scouting, and and um, I, I'm not sure who he's working for, but he was at the game. He's, oh, he's a scout okay. for the team, so that's <laughs> that's pretty amazing that you just brought that up. And um, you know, unlike you, like you said, you always have a name that you kind of remember. And um, you know, I should I should have remembered that he was there, but but anyway, that's kind of that's funny.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. I'm I'm glad I brought that out. <laughs> it never hurts to to kind of you know flex the, the 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 all the hockey knowledge that's rattling around in my brain. But anyway, you you said something earlier that I am definitely key on and that has been we are the New England hockey journal and you said I ended up at UNH. So tell us more uh, how how did your progression to Durham you know happen for you? How how did the recruiting process go and, and, and how did it all come together for you?
3: Yeah, so I, I mean I played just public high school and as kids were, leave, some kids in upstate New York were leaving to go to play prep school. I was like, no way, I'm not, you know, I'm not leaving my buddies and there's no chance I'm doing that. So I graduated high school. And I think at that point I was going to go to this two-year school um, in, way up in New York, uh, Canton Tech. It was just a two-year school. And I was thinking I'd go that route and maybe from there get a chance to play at, a, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a SUNY school, uh, Binghamton or I'm trying to think of some of the schools, the the state schools in New York. Rockport. Yeah, yeah, just some uh, Fredonia. I think was another one that was these Oswego. There's all these, you know. But they, you know, a kid from, you know, from the Utica area growing up. Like if I were to get to play for some a team like that, I would have been ecstatic. And that was kind of my mindset. And um, anyway, that summer before going to Canton, I was invited to a a camp. I think it was some type of U.S. camp, and someone noticed me, a junior team, and asked me to come to Saginaw try out for their uh, junior a team i did that and ended up making the team and i played there had a good year uh, following year i jumped over to the ushl and went to dubuque and and even still I, I think maybe when i got to dubuque i was thinking okay maybe there's a chance i could play for um, you know a, a four-year school that was maybe a little bit more a little bit better or the talent or the competition was better than like a suny school um Uh, But even the year in Saginaw, I really wasn't getting you know a ton of college interest. I just wanted to play, and that was always my mindset was just play and have fun and play at the highest level. And then in Dubuque, things just kind of took off. I mean, it it was a a league that got more exposure, and I think it was maybe a month in, and I was having a really good season. And uh, schools started calling, and I started taking some visits. um, UNH was one of the schools I decided to to visit, and pretty much fell in love with it instantly just just driving to the campus and arriving on campus and um, being on the east coast or where my parents could come see me play that was a that was a big factor and um, made the decision that year to 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 become a wildcat and uh, was definitely not a bad decision best four years of my life and came up a little short with winning a, uh, a title but definitely some some great memories and um, some long life friends that are uh, lifelong friends that I've I still talked to and talked to last night. So it's, it was a great decision. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, and, and so who recruited you? Who, who were the, who were the assistants at the time that, that were, or, or who was in, most instrumental in bringing you into the, to you? Yeah,
3: it? it was Brian McCloskey for sure. Um, he was the guy that I think scouted the USHL for them. Um, yeah. Just a couple conversations with him. I loved his energy and, you know, he was direct and sounded like a salesman, and uh, got me on campus. And rest is history. Chris Serino, um, who passed away a few years ago, he was the other assistant. Uh, wasn't he? Re- he didn't recruit me, but um, talk about a passionate sports guy. He was a baseball guy. I don't know if you know who he is or remember him.
2: I do. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So uh, just a just a lot of passion for athletics in general. So he was a good he was a good mix. Uh, uh, with, you know, with Coach Humili and McCloskey, but uh, like I said, it was, um, it was a combination of everything, but uh, I love the campus and I, and to be honest though, the, you know, I guess the other half of it with all those other things that, that I mentioned with my parents and being on the East, and I didn't want to go to a school and, you know, this is something that I talk to kids about all the time, whether it's college or uh, these junior teams or club teams or whatever, UNH was always kind of in the middle of the pack, and, and, I, and that was intriguing to me because I, I don't know if it's, I didn't, not that I didn't believe in myself, but I, I wanted to go to a place that I could play, and I felt like if I went to a school that was at the top, I, I would risk, you know, not playing, you know, that, and that kind of went into my decision as well, and whether that worked out in a positive way or would have worked out anyway at a different school, I don't know, but that was, that was one of the things that I always, I was thinking about when making that call
2: that's that's really interesting because uh, I've had other other players that have that have gone all the way to the highest levels say the same things that you know sometimes you get wrapped around the axle on oh I want to go on to this particular team or I want to go to this particular league or I want to go to this particular school but it really you have to sit down and and, and, and look at what kind of role will you have and, and will you be able to develop
3: right exactly exactly and and it's you know, going back now, a rebuttal to what you just said. It's, it's not, I think a lot of kids think use that word develop now. And maybe I was the exception. I, I don't really know, but I, I, it wasn't even developing at that point. You know, now I think that's the biggest, that's, that's what everybody thinks about is how do I get to the next level? How do I develop? How am I going to, is the coaching? I honestly, I just wanted to play. I wanted to play and I wanted to play it for as long as I could. And I wasn't thinking you know, when I chose UNH, it wasn't about getting into the pros. I didn't think about that one second, you know, but in today's world, it's completely like that. And right. those are some of the conversations I had with parents asking me for advice on if they should drive two hours and play for this team in Central Mass for their kids 12 years old. And I'm like, are you, are you out of your mind? But but anyway, that's a whole nother topic. But, uh
2: well, but it, I mean, it's really, it gets down. I mean, it's this, that's the thing, right? Things, things have changed so much. So yeah. what are the biggest, so when you, I guess let's go back to when you started at UNH, when you got there, you had played in the NA, the uh, North American league and the USHL, and they were completely different leagues. I'm sure back then to what they are now, Right. Uh, but, but still you were playing against older junior aged players. And so uh how, Prepared? Did you feel like to 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 go in and 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 start at at UNH right away? Because I mean, look, look. As I recall, you were a point per game guy pretty much right away. So you, I
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think um, playing in juniors at least in Dubuque, and I was out of high school, so I had you know you had to do something. You had to get a part time job or whatever, which I did. Um, but I had time to work out, and and they had you know the I think the strength training was coming along at that point. I mean, we're talking really 90, 1993, you know, so, so things were progressing in that, in that sense. And I was working out more and getting bigger and stronger. Um, and I was a late bloomer anyways, you know, as far as my, my body type, and I was a pretty small kid at 18, but, um, you know, so that helped me going into UNH, at least, at least physically being physically prepared. I was 20 years old as a freshman. And, um, so that part of it, I was close. I still needed to add some, but, you know, I still think the biggest, biggest part, even now, in some regards is, is still the mental part of it. And just, and just belong, just believing that you belong. Um, and it took me a little bit to get there. I'm not going to say it took two months or whatever, but I was always kind of a slow starter because I just didn't want to ruffle feathers. I didn't want to, you know, I, I almost didn't believe in myself until I got comfortable. And, um, and then once I did, and it happened to me at every single level. You know, once I was comfortable, I just played. And that's kind of what happened at UNH. And, um, you know, a little bit of a slow start. I think he had, uh, you had like three of us freshmen on one line. And then, you know, by, I don't know, a few months in, you know, I was up, you know, me and Eric Nicholas. Um, we were both, I think he split us up and put us on the first and second lines and um, kind of took off.
2: Another former Bruin, huh? Eric yep. Nicholas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, talk, what was your college experience like? Cause I think, you know, sometimes when, when players are, they're contemplating, do I do, do I go major junior, do I go college? Um, you know, and the college path is so much more, uh, palatable to, to, to players, hot, you know, players that are into it for hockey now, because of the, the gap has narrowed. It used to be, I think in the nineties, certainly you could say, well, major junior was, kind of the accepted path, right? And that was the traditional right. path. But college is yeah. much better now. But from your your you were always going to probably be a college player. That was your that was your your goal. But what what experiences did you have as in college and being a part of college hockey and being on that team that you would tell the kids that hey, yeah. you know, that that's what makes it it different.
3: Yeah. And I think the biggest thing like um you know it's the it's like and I already mentioned it how I you know talked to some guys last night, you know, like it's the family atmosphere and how it just sticks with you for the rest of your life. If you have a good group, you know, and that's, I think that's part of the, you know, what the, these coaching staffs try to form or create is this, this family in college, maybe some more than others, but that's how it was at UNH. And um, there's just a bond of that group of 25 to 28 kids. And um, you don't realize it at the time. I mean, you're having fun and you're, you know, you have your weekends where you can you can bond even more, but 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 at the same point, you don't realize it. But, you know, you're going as you're going through it, you you, you form these friendships and um, and I do think it's changed now. I do think the mentality you know, is, is more about getting to the pros versus winning championships and, and you know, but back when I was there and I'm, I'm fortunate for that to happen. I mean, the more majority majority of the guys there, you know, we just wanted to win. UNH UNH has never won; they still have never won, you know, the title, and that was our main goal. And um, and that's for me what made it special. And if I had to do it all over again, even though things have changed a little bit now, I'd still would i still choose the same path. I mean, that being said, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to comment on going the other direction. Um, but it just making it to the pros and and understanding what a business it kind of turns into, and the fun kind of creeps away at times. I feel like major junior can start that process, you know, a little bit earlier for you where you're almost in a business kind of situation at a young age, 16, 17 years old. So that, you know, that for me is the biggest thing.
2: I saw that when you were a freshman uh, you played with Eric Flint and, uh, and he, I think he led the team in scoring uh, your freshman year, but his son was just drafted by Tampa. uh, That's right. Yeah. And, I, and it's, so it's, it's really interesting to see these names come full circle, probably mm-hmm. let, lets us know that we're, we're getting older, which is like <laughs> the greatest thing. Um, but where were some of that, like, you know, when coming in as a freshman and, and what are some of your memories of how you were welcomed in and how the the upperclassmen, you know, ha- helped with your transition to being a student athlete?
3: Yeah, it's, it's you know, a couple things come to mind. You know, one, one, I remember at the end of the season that year, we got trounced in the in the ncas and like nine to two to Denver and I remember two of the guy two of the seniors come up to me and now their careers are done and they're like you know listen this is not a great memory but I, I guarantee things are going to get better so just erase it and uh, so they they were very supportive and I think it kind of depended on the person you were too you know you I I certainly wasn't one of these guys that came in and and um, tried to dictate what I was going to do and who I was going to be I I, I was you know, I respected my elders, and I respected every you know the upperclassmen. So um, I think they took care of me uh, pretty well, as far as supporting me. And when things were going bad, it wasn't you know they weren't you know stepping on me while I was down. Um, and Flinton being one of them, you know, he was a quiet mannered guy, and he went around he went about his business and he scored goals. And uh, he wasn't a big rah rah guy, but at the same time, you could sit down and chat with him and and make you feel comfortable. So. I mean, and we were still in that phase of, you know, some of the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't want to say the wrong word here, but, you know, initiation, I guess you could say to some extent, nothing, nothing crazy. Transition,
2: but, adjustment. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Simple initiation, transition. Yeah. Nothing, no harm, no, no harm done. But, you know, there. and if you came in and you were a wise guy, you know, you not going to say they did anything bad, but you certainly were maybe treated different, and that's that's the way it probably should be. I'm I'm old school in that sense where I do think you should keep your mouth shut until spoken to, at least to a certain point. And, um, and I did that, and maybe they respected me a little bit for that as well, because um, I I definitely felt comfortable with all those guys, um, all those upperclassmen, and and but it's also a testament I think too of of the the guys that um, the coaching staff brought in. You know, they brought in character guys, blue collar family, um, kids. And so I think it was a combination of everything.
2: So who were some of the teammates you looked up to the most and you respected for the way they worked, the way they played, the way they applied themselves and that you gained the most from as a, as a younger guy. And then eventually you transitioned to work captain yourself, but who kind of paved the way for you?
3: You know what? I think, um, when it came to like watching skills and watching, you know, how these guys created opportunities for themselves. Um, Flinton was certainly one of them. Um, Eric Royal was another one. Um, They were both seniors my freshman year Uh, on the back end. We had, we had this guy that was a hard nosed D man, Teddy, uh, Teddy Russell. And I, and I would watch him compete and he, you know, guys like didn't like to play against him and it's because he, he knew how to cross check guys on the wrist and he knew all those little secrets, um, <laughs> you know, of how to, how to, uh, get under their skin. So we had a good mix of seniors that year that, that, that taught quite a bit. And now, and, you know, as far as juniors, um, the two guys that come to, right to my mind are Mike Sullivan, um, from Redding, um, just. You know, now as a scout, I can, you know, speak in scouting language, but he was, he was a two-way centerman, you know, smart two-way centerman, cared about the defensive zone and his details were really, really good. Um, And then on the, on the back end of his, uh, his class was Todd Hall, Connecticut. um, Just a well-rounded D-man who is probably one of the best D-man that I ever played with. And I mean, I don't know all the guys that have gone through UNH, but I do know that having like uh, offensive minded or guys that could actually run a power play and create offensively. They, they haven't come around that often up in Durham. So he was, um, you know, other than Jamie Filipowicz, who was a year or two younger than me, um, you know, Todd Hall was, he was a special talent. And I do remember, you know, you know, just watching him and, and some of the stuff that he did. Um, so, you know, those are a few names that I, I certainly remember and they helped me, you know, Learn the game and, and develop. I guess you
2: could say right, and and so eventually you you spent all four years there. You were captain your senior year. You played with Jason Krog, and you know I, you guys put up a lot of points. But uh, how 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 meaningful was it to you to be selected to be elite, the lead, you know, to wear the C and to be a leader? And and what were some of the things you were able to pay forward that you had learned?
3: Yeah, it's um, it, that's kind of an interesting thing too, because it's not like something that I. I don't know, that I dreamt about or was a goal of mine to be the captain. It just kind of, I think my personality as I got older and as I matured, it kind of led that direction too. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, I was a productive player and you know, through the, the three years leading up to my senior year, but I'd also like to think that, you know, I was a caring person and I really, you know, I really did want to win. And I wanted to get the best out of everybody. And I wanted everybody to buy in into the same mindset that I had. And that was, let's forget about, you know, all the individual accolades, the points and this and that. And let's just go for it, you know, and we, but if we're going to do it, we got to stick together. And um, so that was, that was something I just tried to, um, you know, convey to the guys and and if things were going haywire we lost a couple games like I would I wasn't afraid to at the end of practice call guys over and we just have a little you know get together in a circle and just talk for 15 minutes on the ice after practice and it's something I don't think happened much before um when I was there and not saying it was there was no magic potion or there are no magic words but I, I just tried to I wanted to put a halt when things were negative and try to a positive spin and, and not let it grow any worse than what it was so I don't know just little stuff I just feel like communication and, and carrying that on through life now whether it's with your kids or wife or, or whatever like communication to me is so huge and, and and after my playing career was done through the pros and so I just I wish I would have done it more in certain times but um, looking back I'm glad I did it at UNH and um, I'd like to think it was um, you know it had it had something to do with how far we got. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, again, the, those teams, and they were well coached and you guys made, you know, made, made an impact and 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 memorable and that perhaps opened some doors for you. You, you said you went to college, never really thinking about the pros and you just wanted to play. And then all of a sudden uh, NHL expansion hits and you have an opportunity to be a part of that. Talk, talk to us a little about uh, how that all came together, your first NHL contract and, and uh, ultimately ending up at the Gaylord <laughs> uh <laughs> i think that's what it was called back then um because yep. i was actually stationed at fort knox uh we, you know just a couple hours away from nashville and i that year and i would drive down to go to the the inaugural season predators games and i remember suiting up for some of those so
3: yeah not a bad place to, to start out that's for sure but um yeah to your point though i mean it wasn't until my junior year where uh, agents started calling me a little bit i was like oh maybe i do have a chance here to you know for the things not to be over when i graduate and and yeah after my senior year i got a couple uh couple offers one from edmonton and one from nashville and ultimately chose nashville thinking it would be you know a good fit just because obviously it's an expansion team and they should be giving guys opportunity to to form their core or form what they're trying to do down there and It was a roller coaster ride, but at the same time, they did—they gave me my opportunity to to get my foot in the door, and um, and it was it was interesting as you probably remember the games looking back and how they would have to describe the games to the fans during during play. So there was icing. I don't know if up on the (laughs) on the center board they would have the definition of icing on the board. So yeah, it was kind of surreal in some ways, um, but at the same time they were crazy fans and. didn't know what they were cheering for but
2: i remember uh, the fang fingers thing when when they would they would go to i think you guys would get the power play and then they would play that that psycho music and
3: and guess what they still do it 21 (laughs) years or no more than that 23 years later yeah still
2: doing the fang fingers
3: yeah it's amazing (laughs) so uh but it was a great experience um from that team, Tommy Fitzgerald, he's the GM of New Jersey. I keep in contact with him. He was the captain of the team that year. Still see lots of guys. Scott Scott Walker, I think he was just named assistant coach in Vancouver. So, you know, I see him around. So it's, uh, there was a lot of good, they did a good job selecting that team, I believe, as far as, you know, character guys and tried to mix in a little bit of everything. um, Ultimately, it wasn't my forever place, but Got my foot in the door and learned some things and and then uh we're down to Detroit.
2: yeah and uh i mean original six so you had a chance to go and again you had to look like you had to kind of work your way up you mm-hmm. started out in grand rapids but then you get the opportunity what was it like i mean the red wings back then are a lot different from from the red wings of today so what are some of the what? so what are some of the memories or experiences you had there in
3: motown yeah, I mean, e- even making the decision that summer, um, I think I had – I can't remember exactly, but I had a few choices too as a free agent um, where to sign. And going back to that whole UNH thing and, and selecting UNH because they were kind of middle of the road and I thought I could play and ultimately choosing Nashville um, for the same kind of reasons, I thought, you know, let's have you know, more opportunity and it's a newer team. I kind of switched, I switched my mindset that summer and talked to my agent and I was like, you know what, like if I could get my foot in the door, if I could somehow get a chance in Detroit with all those, you know, good players and surround myself, I guess, with with better players and more skill, maybe that's the way I should go because it, it hasn't, you know, it didn't really work out in Nashville because I never, you know, I was always kind of plugged in as a, you know, a checker and, you know, energy type player yet when I would go down to the minors, I'd I'd be, you know, placed, you know, more on a top line power play and everything else. So my mindset changed. And, and to be honest, it it did kind of work. It took some time, a full year in Grand Rapids. And then the following year, I went, I think it was about a month I was down in Grand Rapids and then I was called up for the rest of the year. And, um, and boy, geez, I mean, It worked, it worked. I got to play with, you know, Chris Draper and some of these guys in the third line, occasionally play with Shanahan. And it was, it was, it was kind of a blur after that first year. I was like, did this really did this really happen? I I mean we had 10 or 12 Hall of Famers on the team. And so as awesome as it was, and it it was another stepping stone to you know continue my career. There were several times when I'm sitting in the locker room just staring at these guys, like, is this, is this really happening, you know, and that, that goes back to what I told you about the confidence, the self-confidence and just believing that you you're there and, and as a scout now I can, you know, if I talk to players now I'm like, listen guys, like, because it really is a fine line, it's, you're so close, you're so close, whether you're playing juniors to get to division one. I'm so close from Division one to pro hockey from AHL to the NHL like it really is a fine line and that you need some luck you need a coach that likes you or GM that likes you. Um, but anyways, my second year I settled down a little bit and um, I felt pretty good there and I believe that I should be there and it was kind of the middle I guess the middle of my career and it extended it extended my pro my pro life.
1: New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast will return after this message. Catch the Sacred Heart University Pioneers on the ice this season. The Pioneers Division I men and women's hockey programs will not disappoint. Season ticket packages and individual tickets are on sale now at sacredheartpioneers.com. And opening in 2023, Sacred Heart University's Martiri Family Arena, a brand-new, 122,000-square-foot premier skating facility in Fairfield, Connecticut. Learn more at sacredheartpioneers.com.
0: Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA approved courses, to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self paced, and available 24 7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. If you love college hockey and want an inside look at the game, get a copy of the book, Great Game, D1 College Hockey, People, Places, Perspectives. From the emotions of frozen fours to the atmosphere and classic venues, Bruce Haas has captured the passion that people have for the college game through interviews with players, coaches, officials, and fans. No other book captures the spirit of college hockey like this does. Great Game makes a great gift for the holidays for a college hockey fan. Score your copy of Great Game today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Atascabooks.com, or at your local bookstore.
2: just curious on some of the guys that you played with on that Red Wings team. I mean, you know, whether we're talking Datsuk or Iserman or you, know, you mentioned Chris Draper who I know and I see in the ranks now in his in his role with the Red Wings and his, you know, I know his yep. son. But just uh, who are who are some of the guys that you really learned some important lessons to that maybe prolonged your pro career or at least helped solidify your your knowledge base of the game.
3: Well, I think the first year for sure it was Man, it's hard to say one, though, to be honest, because they were all so great and they they all did different things that, that I would see. And I'm like, ah, the commitment, you know, whether it was Chris Jellios riding the bike in the in the sauna, like that's really a true story. Like he would do it all the time. Um,
2: Take the bike into the sauna?
3: Yes. And just like, he didn't lift weights. He didn't do anything. He just, that was his way of, um, you know, getting his heart rate, whatever, maximum heart rate. Uh, capabilities or whatever he was doing, but you know, and it's not for everybody. But it just showed you that you know everybody has their own way of getting prepared and, and staying in shape and being at the top, like you know, top of their game. And Datsuk would that'suke would ride the bike before games. I want to say like twenty five minutes, and he would be drenched. It was like he just played a game, and we were going to go out for warm ups in thirty minutes. Like uh, you know, and once again, it's not for everybody, but it just it goes to show. Eisenman was always a guy that I could just sit down with and just explain what was going through my brain. And um, it was nice to have. It really was, you know, a little timid for me to do it at first, but, um, but once I did, it was it was great to have him there. Um, Lindstrom was very quiet, but he was it was more of him just watching him on the ice and watching his footwork and watching him not overcommit and how calm he was and, and how poised he was. Um, Uh, Let's see. I mean, I could go on and on, to be completely honest. Uh, Kurt Malpey, I I saw him last night. Um, He's scouting, too. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the years I was there and just another detailed guy. And, you know, maybe a scorer in junior, but transitioned his game into, a you know, just a reliable penalty killer checker. And, you know, that's kind of what I had to do um, to ultimately, you know, stay in the league. And so it was good to have him to talk to about that stuff.
2: Um, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. And that's, it's great you bring that up because sometimes you do have to, you know, the, there aren't a lot, not everyone that scores at the lower levels can, can go on and have that role. There's a very few limited amount of spots at the top of the league for, for those players. So you have to really re, kind of be willing to take on whatever it role it takes to stay in the, in the NHL. Don't you?
3: Yeah, no. And I mean, we could have a, we could have a separate show just talking about this, you know, it's, it's really because it's, In the end though, it's really, it's really hard to ever know, you know, but I, but I do bring this up sometimes when I talk to some people, talk to some hockey guys and, um, and you're, you're absolutely right. There's only so many spots. There's only so much opportunity for for guys like myself in that, I guess that category, you know, so which way do you go? And I think, I think about it. I do think about it still to this day is if, if I did have more self-confidence, um, and I did get those, even though it wasn't a lot of times where I'd get chances up the lineup, whether it was Nashville or Detroit. But I, I, did, I definitely didn't run with it because I didn't, I just didn't believe. I didn't believe in myself that I could do it. And I didn't have enough time didn't have, to get enough games to actually play, the, try to play the same way with the same confidence that I did in the American League or, or at, at UNH. Um, but to your point you know, maybe that percentage of, of, of guys that can actually do that is so small anyways, because there just really isn't, there's not that many spots, you know? So, so then what do you do? And, and for me, it was an easy decision. I would have done anything to stay in the NHL. So I did whatever I, I skated as hard as I could. I tried to hit as hard as I could, even though I weighed 180 pounds and, and just tried to to bring energy to the team and, and occasionally, you know, get some pucks to go off my leg and in the net. And, 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 and it earned me, you know, I, I earned another year or two in the NHL by doing that. So, but it is an interesting thing because I, I think confidence is a big part of it. Um, but then also, like you said, even if you, even if you are confident, it doesn't just mean that you're, you're skilled, your skill game from the American League is going to transfer to the NHL level. So it's, it is an interesting uh, conversation.
2: Yeah. And so you did end up in Boston. I was curious. I mean, Dave Lewis was the assistant coach in Detroit with you and then he gets the head job. Did that have, did that factor into the, into the transaction your decision to end up in Boston? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. I was close to, I think it was I was close to signing with Anaheim and then Boston called and he was definitely a part of it. And he was in the NHL level. He was the one coach that I had that, I felt that he really believed in, um, like I talked to you about communication and I think it's getting better at the NHL level, but back in the nineties, early two thousands, like coaches were still kind of old school and there wasn't really a lot of talk. Like I, never had one coach come up to me and just say, listen, you, you belong here. Like just go out and play and be yourself. And it never happened, you know? So, but Dave Lewis was different. Like he was like that. And. So when, when Boston called, I was, I was for sure excited. Cause I knew that he, I knew that not only did he like me as a player, but he believed in me and it helped my confidence and ultimately helped me on the ice, just kind of play the way that play more free, not afraid to make mistakes. And, um, so yeah, so made the decision to go there and, um, we had a tough year. I don't know how much you want to talk about that year, but
2: <laughs> I remember. Well, like yeah. I said, I left halfway through and went went yeah. overseas, but I remember I remember it. Uh, and yeah. Sure you and it,
3: I always say this to people and of course I'm going to stick up for for myself and for whoever was on that team and for Dave Lewis. I'll stick up I'll stick up for him till the end, but I mean we had 11 new faces on that team. Um, and we had some personalities and some 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 players that were completely the opposite of what uh, Dave Lewis had in Detroit. Uh, you, you know, De- Louis Louis in Detroit. I mean, like I said, you get twelve to fourteen Hall of Famers, All Star players. Like they they just put up, you know, simple um, systems, and and this and the guys just wouldn't play. They did it. They were professionals, and they did it. So when when he got to Boston, I think he was overwhelmed because you know we had Phil Kessel coming in as a rookie. We had Mark Savard, who's a strong personality. And then, like I said, another 10, 9 or 10 new player. Char, it was Chara's first year as captain. Um, so, anyway, I defend it in that it was tough to bring in that many new new faces. And, and ultimately, maybe Louie was in over his head. because um, He wasn't used to coaching, um, you know, I don't want to say immature, but that's maybe the right word. You know, no. immature players that were younger in their careers and, and didn't know how, what it took to be a pro just yet.
2: Inexperienced.
3: Yeah. Of course, of course. So, and I think he would say the same thing today.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, but it it molded you. It shaped you. What were the the best lessons you took from that? You know, because again, I, I'm a firm believer in the you know some of the best lessons you'll learn in life is when things aren't going so well. Because when they are, you're having too much fun and you don't really you might take take it for granted. But when they're not, I think you have a lot more time to self reflect and and look at you know, maybe what you don't want to do or, or, or really learn from the adversity that you're going through.
3: Yeah. I, you know, and it's, it's hard for me to say that I took I don't know, I'm, I'm sure at the time that going into that next year, even, even though I got traded in the training camp, but I think it's been just an accumulation of all the years when you're done, you kind of, you know, you, you, unfortunately it's when you're done, you take some of it and you're like, Oh God, I should have maybe you know, I could have worked on this, I could have done this, but I, I do remember that particular year, just just details, like whether it was a bad shift or, or I'm sorry, a bad um line change. You know, I remember multiple times we had bad line change, the puck, the puck was in our net. It's like, oh god. And I was part of one of them that was horrific. And I, I I still think about it to this day, where we all basically changed at the same time and it was in Columbus and gave a breakaway goal and Louis was Louis was gonna snap, but but anyway, just details like that, that that I took forward, you know, the next four or five years of pro, that the game is so fast that if you don't focus on those details, whether it's a line change, whether it's getting the red line so you don't ice the puck and the face in your zone and they win the face-off and the puck's in the net, like those little details, not, not dumping it into the goalie, um, you know, so the goalie gets it and plays it to his D. Like, I just think that, and especially as a scout now too, I see it. It's, I, th- I think the attention to details like that is just, it's so important. And it can make, you know, maybe just not one game, but over the, over the course of the entire season, it can get you maybe four or five more wins. You know, if you have four, you know, four or five guys that, that are more detailed during the games. So that would be the, probably the biggest thing I would take away from that, that particular year.
2: It's a perfect segue. As i was gonna go into the scouting aspect and you teed it up i think we're on the same wavelength here mark because <laughs> uh seriously habits details um my personal belief is that players are so much better skaters and they're more skilled in this day and age because of the year-round ice and the ability to to have skating coaches and skills coaches so yep. as a scout i can only imagine you you see a lot of guys that have the talent that can be that can play that have the ability to play pro hockey, but can yeah. they be pro hockey players? And that's that's your job. So before we get to that, how did you make the transition? I I know you've you've worked for a couple different organizations, but when you when you finished as a as a player, how did you get into the into the scouting and and then uh and then we'll have a little conversation about the the the, the actual life, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's great um so my last year of playing was over in Switzerland and I was pretty sure even the year before uh, my final season I was pretty sure the end was coming so I started reaching out to people and as it got closer to my in my final season I was you know I, I kind of went the other direction and say you know what maybe I'll just get away from the game and try to find something else that that's interesting and, uh but that lasted about two weeks and then <laughs> I uh Quickly, i quickly formed like a summer training program and found like 12 kit 12 hockey players to work out during the summer i i started a, uh, a hockey agency to try to find get get kids um pro guys or college kids jobs over in europe to play uh what else did i do like oh i got involved with Nesson. so i was working Nesson, the ruins games in between periods i had like four hockey jobs going so uh getting away from the game didn't didn't quite work out but um, I think it was the end of the that that follow that first year I was off. I believe it was Tommy Fitzgerald once again. He got a hold of me and he said, "Hey, would you, you know, I, I know you reached out before about getting back in the pro game. Would you be interested in scouting?" And originally, I, when I thought about you know working in the NHL, I thought I thought development would have been the way uh, that I wanted to go, like be able to work with kids and especially use you know, use the experience that I had with how many levels I played and going back and forth from the minors and and all this stuff. But the scouting job uh, opened up. And I remember, I remember um, uh, Tommy Fitch saying, listen, just, you know, get in the game. The jobs are, jobs are hard to come by. So I did that. And, and uh, Scott Mellenby called me just basically a couple just phone interviews. And, and um, it sounded like something I wanted to at least try. And started out with Montreal and um, it it was very interesting just to say the least you know going from a player and then understanding what they do up top um, watching games and it took some time but um, I'm now in my 10th year so it's, it's going fast
2: right you've been on the pro scouting side so what are the biggest differences between what a pro scout is typically doing versus the guys that are on your amateur staff and why is it so important to distinguish the the two?
3: Yeah, so it really is two separate, two complete separate entities, really. And the amateur staff, there could be between 10 and 15 guys across the world. The pro staff, there's normally between three and five guys, I'd say, um, per organization. Um, You know, the amateur, the amateur side is their Super Bowl, as we call it, is the draft. So they're they're working all year long, going to these every weekend. They're jammed up with going to three games three games a day, and they're forming their lists and meeting with each other to, to get their final list of whatever um, to to bring to the draft table. Now our job on the on the flip side of it is we watch we watch NHL, AHL and occasionally we'll watch some college stuff for, you know, um college free agents because they're older kids and you know they're they're closer to pro, you know, than they are obviously their their draft years already um, passed by, but in short our job is to keep a book on every single player within the teams that you cover. Um so for Minnesota uh, we have three scouts. So we have 10 organizations, 20 teams. So if I have Boston, I got Providence. If I have the Rangers, I have Hartford and so on. So, and, you know, there, there are times or there are occasions when you go and trail a player and go watch him, you know, because we might be doing a deal. So you want to make sure you want to make absolute sure that he's not a terrible defensive player or, you know, it's compete levels where we want it to be. But for the most part, you're just you're you're forming your schedule throughout the year, seeing four or five games a week, and you watch a game. You take notes. Um, the next morning, you get on your computer and you you write reports on. Um, I'd say between fourteen and twenty two players per game, and it just goes into a database and the book. It's I call it a book. You have a book on players. So when the GM wants to see the GM or anybody else in the organization wants to see how he's playing. If, if I like him, what I think he is, I think he's a, you know, a third line player. Do I think he's a, you know, a, a power, uh, you know, a power play quarterback guy, like all that stuff's in there. So they can go in and kind of read your book. And then obviously over, if you're doing it for a long time, the book gets pretty thick and and you know, the players pretty well. So that's kind of the gist of of a pro scout. Um, as far as what you're trying to accomplish
2: what are the some of the attributes that you're looking for in 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 successful pros that you would be willing to recommend to your leadership that hey this guy's worth potentially trading for or, or bringing in as a free agent at some point when when that opportunity presents itself
3: yeah and i think it's all that's all situational too as far as what your needs are on your team uh, but i can tell you this like there's there's some the four or five different things that we kind of look for, look at the most are uh, skating, um, compete level, skill level, um, hockey sense is a huge one, you know? So if those all come together, you know, obviously that's like the perfect player. If he's got, you know, if you're rating most of our rating is one to five. So five being the great. So if you have a guy that's got, you know, four fours or five fours that, you know, He's a, he's a pretty complete player and you want the guy. So for me, I, I, I think over the years I've gone back and forth, like we talked about before, uh, taping here, you know, I, I've changed. I've always, you know, I thought speed for me, cause I, I, I could skate and I, you know, the way the game's going, I always thought speed or skating, like being a good skater was up towards the top as far as what you want in a player. And I still think it's important. Um, but to your point earlier in that everybody can skate, it's kind of true. I mean, you you can tell the guys that are slower. And you know, I watched Pat Maroon the other night um, with Tampa. He's probably the slowest guy in the league, but you know, but he fits on that team because they have enough speed and he's smarter on the net and he's got good hands around the net. And he just has the, you know, he's just a piece to the puzzle. And that's where I kind of go back to like it's all situational. You're not, you're not looking for the same piece you know, what are 18 guys that have the same attributes, if you know what I mean?
2: Right.
3: But I, 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 you know, to where I was talking about skating, I really believe that hockey sense and compete are probably higher than the skating. Um, because there's just, and this goes off of what you said too, about all these, you know, there's kids doing all these skill sessions and everybody can skate and because they got skating coaches and this and yeah, this and that, but, you, it's, it's few and far between when you watch a game when you see a guy that is, is like a smart, smart player. It, it really It's true. I mean, at the NHL level, obviously, you're going to see more. But when I go watch an American Day game like I did last night, there's probably three guys out in the ice where I'm like, it just it stands out that those guys know how to support the puck away from the play. They know where to go with the puck before the puck gets to them. They anticipate where the puck's going to go after it's shot from the point, like that type of stuff there's just not a lot of that in the game um, from what I see anymore. Uh, But that's a whole nother conversation too, about where what's being taught to our kids and stuff. But, um, but anyway, those two things, those two things stand out ahead of skating for me at this point.
2: Yeah. It's important. Patrice Bergeron, you played with him, but you know, that's that's his bread and butter, right? Yeah, it's
3: perfect. He's a perfect example. Like you, you know, three years ago, you're probably like, all right, Bergie's. He's gonna. He's trending the wrong way. He's got to be trending the wrong way. He's got his skating's not efficient. He's not a great skater, and every year he comes in and does the same exact thing. You know, and it happened this year too. People start talking about him, and you know, this could be it. He's on the way down. But he's until his brain starts slowing down, I think he's still going to be a, a high end player in the league.
2: Yeah, fascinating. So, so for for kids out there that are. You know, have aspirations to play at the highest levels and and, and want to be successful and I want to keep playing like you said hey I just earlier earlier in the podcast I just wanted to keep playing and I wanted mm-hmm. to, be able to play. What are some things that you would you tell them they really must adopt in their game, if they really want to be, if they're serious about it, what do they have to bring to the rink in practice, in games, in preparation, and in terms of their, you know, laying out their path and and, and being deliberate in how they plan it uh, to set the best conditions for success.
3: Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, this could go a couple different directions, but I'll give you two that did for me that jump out and that's the first one is, is their play away from the puck. So specifically like on the offensive side, like what are you doing when your teammate has the puck? You know, and, and for me, for me, I think it was one of my biggest attributes other than other than the skating was when I did not have the puck, what my defenseman did or my winger did, like I was doing everything possible to find an open spot or space or somewhere where they could get me the puck. I wasn't just standing around let you know, waiting for them to beat a guy and then get me the puck. Like I worked as hard as I could away from it to get open, and and I don't see I'm, I don't see enough of it um, in today's game. So that for me is number one. That's huge, and the other one, like I said, is the compete level. And everybody competes in different ways. It doesn't mean if you're a smaller, skinnier kid that compete means you got to go in, and run around, and try to hit guys when even though when you hit them, you're going to bounce off them and fall down. It's more of just um, that scrappiness or the, the grittiness or you know, when there's a loose puck, you win, you know, you know, you win that puck, the 50, 50 pucks win it um, some second effort doesn't mean every single time you know a puck gets taken away from you, there has to be a, an a reaction or an exaggeration of second effort, but you know, more often than not, just don't give up on pucks, that type of stuff. so it's it's just the, it's just your overall um, compete work ethic slash you know I, I use grittiness a lot because I, you know I, I don't want to say that every guy has to be physical or every guy has to take huge hits because um, I I for I for one I avoided hits like, as much as I could why would I want to get hit you know so so because uh, yeah I would have been broken but um, just that just that compete that little extra effort to win a puck or stay in the battle. Whether it's in front of the net or along the walls, like that. We look for that quite a bit as well.
2: Well, it's yeah, it's great. It's it's important, right? It's the little things. And uh coach I know used to say, you know, everyone wants to score, but when your scoring dries up and it happens to the best of them, what do you bring into the ice that your coaches can rely on and can use, right? And how can you be yeah. still impact the game in a positive way when you're not scoring?
3: And more often than not, if you do those things when you're slumping or the worst thing you can do is think about scoring when you're slumping, right? Like the best thing you can do is just, just put, put the belt on and put the hard helmet on and, and go to work and, and, you know, focus on your defensive game too. I, I always felt that, if that, you know, you really focused on your D zone and your coverage and stuff like you would eventually break out of it. Like, I don't know, you just somehow, some way the hockey gods, they look out for you. You know, you, you didn't score in three or four games or whatever it is, but, You really focus on those details, defensive details, like it's going to turn around. And I think it does more often than not.
2: Well, the time has flown, as I suspected it would. We've had, uh, we've had almost a, almost an hour, but I really appreciate it. I'm going to tease a few more things that we're going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to hit you with a rapid fire round. That's kind of what we do on the podcast. And okay, we will okay. ask you a few quick questions. You don't have to put a whole lot of thought, but uh, we'll see how quick you can think on your feet. And judging by the way you used to play hockey, I think you're going to do just fine. So, <laughs> all right, here we go with the with the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Got it
1: it's time for
3: rapid
2: fire okay favorite nhl team growing
3: up whoever gretzky played for
2: okay well that that eliminates my next question who is your who is your favorite player but uh who is the yeah, toughest, was the who was the toughest uh, goalie you faced in college
3: poof in college that's a tough one geez i gotta remember now See, these are the questions i'm not good at because i had too many concussions um
2: Okay, well, pros too. Any any goalie toughest goalie, toughest goalies to score on.
3: My God, could it be my own? Yeah, sure. Like like Hashik Dominic Hashik, the one year was just amazing. He oh, could no. read everything coming off the stick. So I'd have to, even though it was just practice, I'd have to go with him.
2: Hey, Dominic Hashik is not a bad uh, bad answer <laughs> for rapid fire round. Okay, favorite vacation spot.
3: Ooh, it's. It's hard to say vacation spot because I live there, but if I had to go I want to go back and that's Switzerland.
2: And where in particular?
3: Uh well, you could say uh say Sasfe, Switzerland. Okay. The resort town. Favorite athlete outside of hockey. I gotta go Tom Brady.
2: Okay. That's good. You survived the rapid fire round. <laughs> did I know? I don't know
0: if I
3: did.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, you survived. You, you're at the end, and you, and and Tom Brady is a great way to close. So, Mark, <laughs> again, thank you so much for your uh, your time. Thank you for for joining us on the Rinkwise uh, podcast. It's been great having you.
3: No, thanks for having me. That um, was quick. That went too fast. But always love talking hockey. <laughs>
2: That was Mark Mowers, who joined us via Zoom. Now, in studio, we have author Bruce Haas, who has written a book about college hockey called Great Game, D1 College Hockey, People, Places, Perspectives. Bruce, it's great to have you. Thank you very much, Kurt. Pleasure to be here. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your background because you, you you have it in the introduction, but you and I did say you're from Melrose and uh, played at Colby.
4: Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, but uh, talk talk to us about how you got into hockey and uh, what what happened at the beginning that ultimately led you down the road to, to writing a book about college hockey.
4: Sure. Yeah. Well, I've I've always loved the game as a Melrose kid. You you start playing pretty early. Uh, played up through high school. Uh, Lost a couple of years of high school to back surgery and didn't finish my high school career. But when I had a chance to go to Colby, uh, I was cleared to play again and had an opportunity to play there for a couple of years before the the back kicked in again. And so a uh, uh, short-lived career, but a, but a fun one. And so I, I've always loved the game. I love coaching the game, which I, I've done since I got out of college. I uh, still do. Uh, love attending the games, watching the games. And uh, so as I as I went through, you know, followed the pros and... Uh, the colleges over the years. Uh, it wasn't until the, the early '90s that, uh, in Maine's team with uh, Paul Korea and Jimmy Montgomery and so forth, it really caught my attention. And so after they won that year, uh, we, uh, a couple of friends of mine and I said, "Well, let's go to the let's go to the Frozen Four. So for since 1994 on, I've been uh, going to the Frozen Fours. And as I uh, as I near retirement, which I've been retired about six years now, so I was getting near retirement. I thought, uh, you know, I'd really like to do something. I'd love the atmosphere of, of the Frozen Four and the people that I met there and the fun things there. So um, I thought, you know, I'd love to do something to give back to that group, to the people who love the game like I do. Um, so I started thinking about a book. Um, I'm not a writer. I was a banker by profession um, and I did major in English way back when at Colby, but uh, I started uh, thinking about, gee, it would be nice to, to do a book on the game. And as I looked around the college hockey landscape, there really weren't any books on a, on a broad national level. There's some great books about individual programs. Michigan's got books. Uh, Dakota's, North Dakota's got books, so forth. And uh, so I said, okay, this is, this is an opportunity to do something that the broad spectrum of college hockey fans might enjoy. So as I... Um, wanted to give back to the group, that to people in general that love the game so much. I, as I say, I started to think about a, a coffee table book, pictures and so forth, and didn't really know how to go about it exactly. So I just started talking to people and someone connected me and said, oh, you ought to go talk to Bobby Allen. Um, he's a friend of mine, a uh, friend of this person that I knew. And so I started with Bobby and and asked Bobby, who else should I talk to? And as I started to get more and more into the content with um, people interviewing former players and fans, I found that there was an an awful lot of emotion. There were some really neat stories there. And as that progressed through the course of four or five months of interviewing uh, players from around the country and fans from around the country, um, I said, "Okay, this really isn't a coffee table book. Maybe there's a lot more here. Themes started to come out, leadership, camaraderie, Uh, the love of the game and the fans attending the Frozen Fours. So from that point, I started to focus on more and more interviews rather than the idea of pictures and small content. Um, So that took me to... Uh, coaches. Uh, I had not planned at all to do officials. You found things on officials in the book, but uh, I had an opportunity uh, to interview Steve Piotrowski, who at that point was head of the Big Ten officials. And uh, Steve said to me, uh, Well, you, you do. I talked to him about his, his experience playing, and he said, Well, you're doing anything on officials? And I said, well, I hadn't really thought a whole lot about it. And he said, uh, Would you want to come out to the uh, Big Ten officials clinic in September? And meet the guys and kind of see what the officiating side's all about. I said, sure, love to do that. So uh, that was an eye-opener for me, total eye-opener. Um, everybody loves to hate the officials. Everybody, you know, to, it's that, that standard sports. But um, that opportunity to uh, sit with those guys and hear their stories and the camaraderie that they have and the sacrifices they make gave me another whole section of the book to write. So... That's really how it came together. It became a whole series of uh, small stories, vignettes from these people's experiences the players from the perspectives of getting into the game at the college level, what that meant, uh, leadership, uh, the camaraderie they found there, and that, that lasts a lifetime, the coaching. Uh, coaches were very generous with their time, had an opportunity to talk to many of them, uh, former coaches, current coaches, about their philosophy, how they get into it, and so forth. So um, it, it gave shape to um, a series of stories that um, had a great editor help me out with it, and, and we put it together to the book that you have now
2: right and the the cover of the books is Providence College and you've got UMass Lowell, but uh, I remember there's a vignette in there from Nate Lehman uh, that stuck with me and you were talking he was talking about establishing team culture and identity and he said and and I never heard it put this way, but it's it's so right on and he he said culture is how you live Identity is how you play yeah and so you know breaking that down for the players and 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 telling them because we talk about hockey culture all the time and we talk about the importance of culture the importance of identity what is it right and so if you can have just a simple explanation like that from a national championship you know winning coach Mm -hmm. it it really put it in perspective nicely that was a that was a really interesting you know portion of the book
4: It does, and and, uh, Rico Blasi talked a little bit about culture and identity, too, and and his take on it was a little bit different, where he he liked the the thought of it more as the identity of the coach and and what is that coach's values and what's important to him that he's brought to the table and shaping a a team culture around those. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, the coaching challenges and the things that they they learned about themselves – as they evolved their coaching philosophies um, and, and as success came and, and went for them, were very interesting. Um, starting programs from scratch or following legends that they had to sit in their shoes, all, uh, all very, uh, very interesting stories and, and interesting to how what you see today in some of these current coaches, uh, where they came from.
2: Yeah, and I, I liked the you know, as you said, they're vignettes, they're anecdotes. It's a very readable book, uh, broken up into the different stories. It's not like you're picking up a book and you're reading a long narrative. It's just. It, you know you' you're one section you're talking to a guy from North Dakota that got into the hurt- you know Tony herkus back in the day in the herkus circus, which you know I could I certainly remember because I was a big Bruins fan and Bobby Joyce was riding shotgun with Tony Herkus back in those days and and helping the fighting Sioux you know win the nineteen eighty seven national championship and they had some guy in that was pretty good I think his name was Eddie Belfort yeah <laughs> um you know quite a team right sure and, yeah. and so you you see that you, know, you go from that to you know then you're talking about people in 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 omaha nebraska and then and then the Bo- the boston university dad who raised a uh, boston college son you know and the and the and young timmy yep. you know just uh um liking boston college because he just decided they were winning more games at the time and so you know he goes you know dad's thinking is he's raising a terrier diehard and he ends up with a with an eagles fan but uh, yeah. the 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 link that the two the father and the son have that the the common denominator is the game and that's what brought you you know that was what you know originally brought you into it the love of the game and
4: absolutely and and you find that in in fans throughout the country unique stories like that with with uh, timmy and justin um, so you're, you talked about North Dakota. Some of the North Dakota fans that I've met over the years and and talked to was part of the interviews for the book. Was um, their stories were, were amazing. You, you don't even think about things going on where a, a guy's uh, wife has gallbladder surgery, but he's able to put it off for a day so he can attend the Frozen Four in Columbus that that Thursday night. Uh, you know, just fun things like that that you you find as you talk to people, and, and that was one of the things that that helped generate it, as you said. You know, you go, you go into some of the bars, you just hang out with some of the people and and you uh, feel that passion. You hear them talk about it, but you feel it. And, and it's uh it's a, it's almost a cult in some ways. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the, the, the college hockey
2: fans are so, so passionate. And then you, you know, what I like about the book is you really go into not just, hey, it's not just about winning the championships. You're not just talking about, I mean, no, obviously the guys that won, they're, they're a part of it. Uh, certainly everyone likes winners, but it's, it's more. It's the character building and the one story that that sticks out is the Andrew Cinelli talk at Michigan talking about Luke Glendening, who's in the NHL and what a leader he was. And you know, if you could, you know, just shed light on that on that anecdote because I think it's really it's really important to a lot of players that might be asking themselves, well, you know, do, do I read a book about college hockey? And and this anecdote will will we'll answer in the affirmative.
4: Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, andrew was a was an interesting guy. He got out in fifteen from from Michigan, having played there, starting as a walk on and um, it, the accountability aspect of of that particular story and about what uh, guys have to go through in playing college hockey being held accountable it 's pretty significant but Andrew. Andrew had a bir- had a friend who was having a birthday party, and uh, there was a rule at Michigan at that time, maybe still, that um, you couldn't go out and, and have a drink unless you'd actually played in a game, and Andrew uh, had a best friend having a birthday party. He asked permission to go, but Luke Lang um, captain at the time, said to him, well, uh, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to see me at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and we're going to do a workout together to make up for the fact that you kind of had to do this thing that's, that's outside the rules. And sure enough, Luke shows up and Andrew shows up and Luke puts him through a, a workout that morning and, and that's, that's part of that accountability.
2: And he showed up 15 minutes earlier. He did, as a matter of fact. Yeah. yeah, make sure right. that
4: everybody's there. But leadership. The right. leadership. And that's, that's one of the things you t- look at some of these guys. Jack Conley from... Um, uh, in Minnesota Duluth, um, one of the things that he talked about was how hard it is to hold your teammates accountable as a captain. Um, you know, they're your buddies, they're your friends, and at times you've got to deal with that with them and you've got to tell them something that they might not want to hear, and how do you do that? Um, and Jack's approach was he, he'd never do it in front of everybody. He'd take somebody aside and say, look, you know, you're not pulling your weight or whatever it might be, and um, that, that's, you find that uh, approach with the leadership will certainly vary from person to person. Some are loud leaders, some are vocal leaders, some are uh, do-it-by-example leaders, but uh, they all hold each other accountable in their own ways. And uh, It was fascinating to hear from these guys who, who have played uh, at the highest level as to just what that means to them to both be leaders and to be led by good leaders. You talked
2: about Bobby Allen being important to the, you know, to the book, and just, you know, he, he played on some pretty good Eagles teams. What are some of your recollections of, of the conversations and, you had about those? those
4: well, you know, it was and, interesting with, with Bobby, when, and when BC and Bobby Allen and, and um, uh, uh, Jonta won there in 2001 over North Dakota, uh, Bobby, that was his senior year, and um, he had played in Frozen Four the previous three years. And he'd lost in 98 to Michigan, 99 to Maine, and 2000 to North Dakota. Right. And in 2001, they beat all of those teams to to win the title. And you know, when you became a senior, and, and there were a couple other vignettes in about guys who became seniors, you, you weren't sure if you were going to get there again. Um, so here, here he's been there three years. You're not sure if you're going to get there a fourth year, and you do. And his emotions... That uh, came out after winning that and having looked back at the at the journey he had to get there, it's it pretty powerful. And um, and uh, he was he was he's a great guy and talked about it very openly as to to what it means to him, you know, to have won that, but to also have have been there with those guys for four years and kind of suffered through some tough times to get there.
2: I grew up a uh, Boston College fan, an Eagles uh-huh. guy, and yeah. you know a lot of some of it had a lot of it had to do with hockey. I was obviously the hockey, but I was a Doug Flutie guy. But I remember being torn in 2000 because Lee Gorin, who's mentioned in the book yeah. and, and and a participant, was at North Dakota and he was a Bruins uh, prospect, and then they're playing BC, and so I felt I was it was tough. I mean, I I felt going into that game I couldn't really lose in 2000 because either way I was going to be happy. Yeah. Um, but then in 2000, Two thousand one, there was no questioning who, wh- where my rooting interest was. So I was happy for those guys, and I know they recently honored that team, uh, you know, in the twenty year yeah. anniversary and some some incredible names, you know, going back to that 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 Eagles team. Whether you are talking Bobby Allen or you, you know your uh, Chuck Cobasu or yeah. you know, Chris yeah. Colano, guys, yeah. and, uh, I mean, you know, dramatic goal scoring. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. so uh, that you know, I can I could see your passion, you know, and in, in the book, and I think it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for people who really. Enjoy Enjoy, enjoy hockey, but college hockey, and and, and it, it. What I like about it is you you you're bringing in the fans, you're bringing in the players, the coaches, the officials, and then the guys behind the scenes too, the support staff. Like there's no no stone is left unturned in your wow. in, in your book, and I think that's the greatest service you can do, uh, you know, for hockey is to to shine a light on on all aspects. So uh, I I think it's a it's a great read. Oh, and, thanks. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's definitely a passion project for you. Oh, it
4: sure was, yeah. And uh, and know uh, look forward to uh, getting back to Frozen Fours again, seeing some of these same people that I've seen over right. the years. Right,
2: and you don't have to travel very far not at this all this year. year no, yeah? not at all. When, when's the last time we had a Frozen Four in Boston? was 2004. Uh, 2004. Yeah, yeah 04, 2004, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Denver and uh, uh, Maine, I think it was Denver, Maine, in that one. Yeah, yeah wow. Yeah, it's a good one. So it's been a while. And, uh, yeah, there's some great venues to to see the – the the frozen fours, but there's some great barns all around the country. And that's one of the fun things I had an opportunity with this to, to get to some really nice places. What What are some of the
2: other, what are maybe some of the best kept secrets out there for, for college hockey that people out here, maybe in the Northeast aren't, aren't all that familiar with?
4: Well, yeah, certainly Yost at Michigan's, um, like the people call it the cathedral. And when you go in there and see the big stained glass or the big glass windows at the end of the arena and look up there in the high ceiling, you get that feeling. Um, uh, no one, unless you've been there, has an understanding of what Ralph Engelstad Arena is like at North Dakota. Right. It is just... An amazing, amazing place. Taj Mahal of Taj Haji Mahal, and drop a hundred million <laughs> bucks on the place oh, yeah. to make it work. Uh, walk around on those marble floors and, and the inlaid the photos, suit. the history. You know, it's just
2: going and seeing those. Phenomenal. Guys, was, yeah.
4: yeah, there's still places I'd like to get to. Um, I'm hoping next year. I, would, I made it to Duluth this fall for the icebreaker. To, um, see that. I'd like to get to the Upper Peninsula. Uh, michigan tech northern uh, mm-hmm. michigan tech's arena is supposed to be a great place too
2: have you had a chance to get to baxter and in, in omaha yet
4: yes yeah. yeah i went out there uh that's a that's a nice you know nice new arena a place to a great place to see a game obviously out here alfond and the gut some of the old ones I haven't been to Lina yet i'd still like to get to Lina. so there's still a bucket list of arenas i need to get to
2: sounds great well again uh Great game. That's the book D1 College Hockey People Places Perspectives. Bruce Haas is the author. Check it out. How how uh, how can people get your book, Bruce?
4: You can get it on Amazon, um Barnes & Noble, and also through Atasca ItascaBooks is uh, my distributor out in Minnesota.
2: Yep, and Truth and Lending, you are a sponsor of the RinkWise podcast. So thank you I very am. much for that, but uh My
4: pleasure. But hey, ho-
2: hockey is a great game and it, I can't think of a better name for the book and and Bruce, thank you so much for your time Come and coming coming to the studio and joining us today.
4: Happy to do it. Thanks, Kirk. Thank you.
2: That was Mark Mowers and Bruce Haas. We enjoyed having them on the show. Thank you for joining us. And as always, we'll see you at the rink.
1: Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at HockeyJournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise is a Siemens Media podcast.